what is today thought of as a primarily athletic rivalry grows out of the events of an incredibly violent conflict that predates the first football game between the University of Missouri and the University of Kansas by nearly two generations. My name is Jeffrey Dean, and I'm actually from North Carolina. As a Mizzou student, I have been told to hate Kansas for three years now, but I never knew why. Now, I am in pursuit of the answer. This is Beyond Mr. Brightside. You've got dueling governments, each claiming to be the rightful authority, but neither of which is legitimate in the eyes of the other side. In the spring and early summer of 1863, the guerrillas are basically just dominating western Missouri. It's a point at which the state of Missouri and the territory of Kansas come right up to the brink of open hostilities. This is Missouri history, in, in a sense. You know, Missouri has always been a very complicated place. How do people who have gone through the worst guerrilla violence that you can imagine, how do they move on with their lives? Missouri joined the Union in the early 1820s, over four decades prior to Kansas joining. For Missouri, its initial petition to join the Union was blocked. Dr. Jeremy Neely, an assistant professor of history at Missouri State University, explains why. Each time that a free state came in, a slave state had come in, and, and that rough parity had been preserved. But Missouri tries to come into the Union as a slave state. Uh, Northerners uh, block its petition for statehood because Missouri wants to become a slave state. And they fear that because Missouri is one of the new states being carved out of this vast Louisiana territory, that it's really the test of what's going to follow. If Missouri was allowed to join as a slave state out of the Louisiana Purchase, Northerners feared the rest of those territories would follow and slave states would permanently outnumber free states. In one of the more infamous political maneuvers, Henry Clay, a representative from Kentucky and Speaker of the House in 1820, found a solution that would further prolong the conflict over the future of slavery in America. Here's Dr. Neely on what that solution was. The compromise that Henry Clay will broker says that Missouri can come in as a slave state uh, at the same time that Maine will come into the Union as a free state. And so they preserve that equality of the free and slave states. This compromise, known as both the Missouri Compromise and the Compromise of 1820, will maintain the parity in the Senate, as well as set the doctrine for future admission to the Union. Dr. Neely again. The bigger part of the Missouri Compromise says that aside from Missouri, the rest of the Louisiana Purchase is supposed to be free soil. Um, and so it's going to say that future states beyond Missouri's west and to its north, um, no more slave states there. And so it's a a win for the northern states in that respect. The southern states are happy to have Missouri join the fold. This agreement is maintained for over three decades until it comes time to build a railroad. Stephen A. Douglas, a senator from Illinois and future opponent to Abraham Lincoln in the famous Lincoln-Douglas debate, proposes the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which nullifies the Missouri Compromise. Douglas wants the railroad to start in his home state of Illinois, and that rests on the organization of the territories west of Missouri. To see this happen, he is willing to do anything to see that through. The Southern Democrats uh, within his own party in the Senate um, make clear that they're not going to support this. And so his plan to organize the, these new territories of Kansas and Nebraska will go nowhere uh, unless he's willing to throw out the Missouri Compromise. And that's what he does. The Kansas-Nebraska Act puts the fate of enslaved people in the hands of the settlers of each of the states through a principle called popular sovereignty. 
With this policy, the U.S. Senate passed the responsibility of abolishing slavery onto its voting citizens, a group that only included white men. The ramifications of this are felt to this day. It is at this point, following the passage of the Kansas-Nebraska Act, that the five-year conflict known as Bleeding Kansas will begin to unfold. Bleeding Kansas is the partisan violence that erupts in Kansas territory uh, over which faction should control uh, this this future state. Um, should it be the, the pro-slavery uh, partisans um, who established the first territorial government, or should it be the anti-slavery faction, which um, believing that that pro-slavery group is illegitimate will create a rival government uh, in Topeka. The timing of the passage of the Kansas-Nebraska Act and the outbreak of the conflict that ensues is particularly pertinent to understanding the depth of the violence that takes place, especially with its relationship to Missouri and the history of Missouri as a state. Dr. Neely explains. Missouri is, is, a, is a generation older as a state. Uh, Kansas is becoming a territory at a time when the nation is now being torn apart by sectional divisions over slavery. And, and so nevertheless, this, this shifting political context means that the stakes of Kansas's potential entry as a state um, are even higher than they were uh, back in 1820 when there was that original kind of burst of sectional animosity. At this time, most of the fighting is guerrilla warfare, which leads to the rise of the original Missouri Tigers. Dr. Neely explains who they were. The Missouri Tigers were a group of Boone County residents who took up arms to defend the state university. They were not explicitly unionist or confederate as much as they were locals determined to keep uh, the campus at that time safe from marauders or from, um, you know, folks on either side. According to the University of Missouri website, this militia unit was the inspiration for the Mizzou football team nickname in 1890. Eventually, it became the mascot for all athletic teams representing the university. On the Kansas side of the border, the violence was far more intense, and the namesake of the Kansas Jayhawks were right in the middle of it. Here's Dr. Neely again. The original Kansas Jayhawkers were bands of anti-slavery partisans who were eager to see the free state faction gain control of Kansas territory. Originally, um, it's pejorative. Jayhawker meant to plunder. Uh, the Jayhawk was allegedly a bird that preyed upon weaker you know, species and made itself um, fat and powerful. These Jayhawkers rose to power in the mid to late 1850s as anti-slavery migrants from the North began to move into Kansas territory. It is important to remember that the future of slavery versus freedom in Kansas will be determined by popular sovereignty, so this rapidly increasing anti-slavery population improves the odds that Kansas will become a free state. The pro-slavery factions in Kansas and Missouri that were trying to maintain the institution of slavery attempted to take advantage of this process. Popular sovereignty is it's a numbers contest to see which, um, which side, uh, pro-slavery or anti-slavery, can get the most uh, voters into the territory. And Missouri, because it's adjacent, uh, is going to have people moving in um, before the, the ink is even dried on the Kansas-Nebraska Act. This illegal effort by pro-slavery groups to spread slavery into Kansas territory ends up failing and creating a much larger conflict. Pro-slavery settlers had a clear advantage, um, but they, they overplay their hand.
the early territorial census had found there would have been the exact number eludes me, but about 2,700 eligible voters in these first uh, elections. But when the ballots are counted, more than 6,000 uh, have, have cast ballots. Per Dr. Neely's estimate, that means over twice as many ballots were cast than the number of eligible voters in the territory. However, it's who these people were that is important to the conflict that will ensue. These are largely Missourians who have come over for election day and then gone back home. Uh, and they've stuffed ballot boxes and they've used uh, violence and the intimidation of violence um, to deter anti-slavery people from even showing up. Um, and so it seems like a, a fraudulent election to uh, anti-slavery Americans. The ultimate result of this fraudulent election is the creation of two rival governments in Kansas, one anti-slavery and one pro-slavery. Following the creation of these rival governments, the violence begins to escalate rapidly following the introduction of one of the more instrumental individuals in the bleeding Kansas conflict. John Brown is a radical abolitionist who comes west for the purpose of making Kansas a, a free state. But unlike previous abolitionists, uh, John Brown believes that slavery can't be talked to death. He believes that it has to be killed. And so he comes west armed and preparing to fight what, what he would understand as a holy war. And uh, on, in May of 1856, he is going to lead a band of men, including his adult sons, uh, to uh, bring what he believes is payback to uh, guys that are, are pro-slavery sympathizers uh, his victims won't actually be slaveholders, but known supporters of the pro-slavery government. According to Dr. Neely, these killings are going to be the catalyst for the partisan war that will break out in Kansas and eventually bleed into Missouri. This fighting in Kansas continues for two more years before it will spill into Missouri. After 1858, uh, you begin to see forays, raids across the state line into western Missouri. And from that point forward, that that open border south of, of Kansas City today, uh, where there's no natural barrier separating the states, uh, it just becomes a no man's land. There continues to be partisan warfare on the Kansas-Missouri border for the next few years, but the intensity and frequency gradually declines. That is until the introduction of another centerpiece to the legacy of this border. William Quantrill had originally settled in Kansas. Uh, he had come to Lawrence, of all places, and had uh, gone by the pseudonym of Charlie Hart. Th there's a lot of mythology that eventually gets wrapped up around Quantrill, and so his exact story gets shrouded in, in some uncertainty. The exact thread there is, is not clear, and the evidence is, as a historian is, is not that persuasive. But nevertheless, uh, Quantrill goes to Missouri. And after the start of the Civil War, he will take up arms uh, as a pro-Confederate guerrilla. This is the same William Quantrill whose legacy will be further immortalized on t-shirts by Mizzou football fans some 140 years later. The ways in which Missouri fans latched onto Quantrill as this avatar of, of Missouri, it's a troubling choice because Quantrill was himself not a Missourian. He had come to Missouri uh, he'd, he'd ridden with these pro-Confederate guerrillas. It is Quantrill at this point who reignites the border violence that had largely been diminishing over the previous two years. These pro-Confederate guerrillas become known uh, as bushwhackers. The bushwhackers will uh, ride on horseback through western Missouri, uh, harassing and then terrorizing their Unionist neighbors, uh, attacking Unionist forces, and 
At first, the bushwhacker violence is just in Missouri, which is a Union state, but it's sharply divided between Unionists and Confederates. Um, by 1862, that violence is, has spread into Kansas, and so the, the border is again inflamed. His story and his actions are part of what makes this conflict so much more complicated than it appears. William Quantrill is an Ohio-born Kansan who resettled in Missouri before returning to Kansas to commit an atrocity that will shape the relationship between Missouri and Kansas forever. Dr. Joe Beeline explains. The Lord's Massacre takes place in August of 1863, so sort of right in the middle of the Civil War. We don't actually know the exact numbers, but probably over 200, uh, maybe more than 300 bushwhackers from Missouri. So guerrillas that fought for the Confederacy, you know, on the part of the South, uh, they had pro-slavery politics, all of that. They crossed the, the border, uh, you know, ride through Kansas. They're all wearing Union uniforms. And they rode into to Lawrence at dawn and, you know, massacred somewhere between 150 and 200 men and boys, uh, the vast majority of which were unarmed. The violence extends beyond Lawrence, though. As Civil War fighting continues to take place across the rest of the country, things on the western frontier spiral out of control. It is after Fort Sumter that, you know, the violence and the brutality of, of that territorial period really reaches a new depth and intensity uh, because now you've got large organized armies uh, joining this, uh, this guerrilla struggle. The war doesn't last forever, and in 1865, the Civil War fighting came to an end, and shortly thereafter, Reconstruction began. The University of Kansas opened its doors the same year, and 25 years after that, the Tigers and Jayhawks played their first football game against each other. But how did they build a rivalry in the shadow of a violent conflict between factions of the two states? What does it mean for the people who lived through the violence, who were eyewitnesses to their city being burned to the ground? That's next time on Beyond Mr. Brightside.